Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each of us. Peace be with you. Friends, throughout this Easter season, we've had the enormous privilege of reading from the book of Revelation. Of course, the final book of the Bible, the place where the entire scriptural story comes to its climax. Can I ask everybody, sometime during the Easter season, so this week, next couple of weeks, could I urge you to read the book of Revelation? Read it front to back. It wouldn't take you that long. And then, you know, if you can, even go on the web and look for a good commentary on it. It's a book that a lot of our Protestant friends know pretty well, and we don't know, we Catholics don't know as well, but we should. Because as I say, the whole story in some ways comes to its climax, its fulfillment here. Well, the passage for this Sunday is taken from the 21st chapter, which is the penultimate chapter of the book. There's a kind of denouement in chapter 22, but chapter 21, so we're at the very end of the whole Bible, represents this fulfillment of the story. It's the ringing finale of the entire Bible, the terminus ad quem, if I can use my old philosophical language, of all of Scripture. So my point here is we need to pay very close attention. So listen now. The seer, identified as John, so uh, it was a John the Evangelist, another John, there's a great debate about that, but let's just say the seer tells us what he sees. Listen. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Notice first, the Bible is not Platonic. That is to say, it's not dualist in its inspiration. It does not see the culmination of the spiritual life as an escape from or abandonment of matter. Let me say that again, because I think we're so easily tempted into a kind of, you know, generic Platonism, a dualism. Hey, the spiritual life is about getting rid of the body and getting beyond matter. Not in the Bible, it's not. Rather, the Bible envisions the renewal of the created world. Now, I want to make a link here between the last book of the Bible and the first book of the Bible. How could the God who pronounced in the book of Genesis all creation good ever give up on it? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, if you're a Platonist and you say, well, yeah, the material world is, is bad. It's the result of a fallen God or it's a, it's a false God that created it. Read the ancient Gnostics. You'll find exactly that view. By the way, they pop up too in the present day, but that's sermon for another day. But see, how could the God of the Bible, who pronounced all creation, even things that creep and crawl upon the earth, as good, ever finally give up on it? How could the point be, now get rid of all that, escape from all that? No, no. Bodies, matter, animals, plants, all of it's good from the beginning, and all of it will belong to the new creation, to this eternal realm. Okay, so if that's true, what does it mean to say, and I'm quoting again from our passage, 
that the former heaven and the former earth have passed away. See, so John says the new heaven, new earth is coming, and the old heaven and old earth have passed away. Well, isn't that kind of platonic? The answer is no. What a biblical person like John means is that the world of corruption, sin, violence, hatred, sickness, and death will pass away. That that world will be transfigured. You know, everyone comments on this, but it's important to, to remind ourselves. The word world, cosmos, in the New Testament has a double sense. So on the one hand, God so loved the world. So there's the world I'm talking about, the good world, the good creation. God so loved the world, he sent his only son, right? At the same time, we hear about the world and the powers and principalities of the world, the ways of the world. My kingdom does not belong to this world, right? Same word, but very different meaning. It means this old heaven and old earth. It it means this realm that's marked by all this negativity. That will indeed pass away. They will be one day no more. You know, a very important clue is found in the next line. Listen. And the sea was no more. Now, what this doesn't mean is that God suddenly has something against water. God, God creates the oceans and creates the seas. Rather, it's symbolic speech here. For the ancient Israelites, and, and also for a lot of other ancient peoples, it's very interesting to me, the Romans as well, uh, for the ancient Israelites, the sea was a sign of sin and death. See, you know, we're relatively comfortable with our, our modern ships, you know, plying the waves of the sea or in our airplanes flying over the sea. But go back to the ancient world. To venture out onto the, onto the choppy waters of the Mediterranean Sea, for example, a frightening thing. Read in St. Augustine when he has to get on a boat a couple times in his life. He had to cross the Mediterranean from Africa to Italy and then back again. Terrified both times. People prepared themselves by, for months to prepare to, to cross the sea. And so in the Bible... The sea, with all of its fears, is a symbol of the tohu bohu. Again, I'm hearkening back to the first book of the Bible. It says that God's Spirit hovers over the tohu bohu. It's the Hebrew for the primal watery chaos from which God will bring order. We see how wonderful now in John's vision, when the new heavens and new earth come, the sea will have disappeared meaning this, meaning this, the place of fear, corruption, sickness, sin, and death. Then what does, God, what does John see? Listen. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, there's so much packed into that little line, isn't there? What was Jerusalem for biblical Jews? But the place of right praise. Right? For centuries, Jews came up to Mount Zion, true pole of the earth, to praise God at the top of Mount Zion, meaning at the temple. 
And as such, the temple was the new Eden because Eden was a place, God's original intention for us. It was a place where God was rightly praised. See, where Adam and Eve are turned toward God. Well, after the fall, after sin has invaded God's good creation, God wants to restore it. And his first step was to establish a people, Israel, and to teach them how to praise him. And they did that in the holy temple, in the city of Jerusalem. We notice, of course, that in the heavenly Jerusalem, there is no temple. It might strike us as odd until we think, no, no, what it means is the whole city has become a temple. Again, the beauty of the image of a city, with all of its activities, you know, political activity, the arts, sciences, sports, entertainment, think of all that goes on in a great city. Well, the point here is every aspect of the new Jerusalem has been turned into a place of praise where God is rightly honored. That's what John is seeing. And then in that sort of deliciously mixed metaphor, it always makes me smile a little bit, the city is imagined as a bride about to meet her bridegroom. So what does a city dressed up as a bride look like? I'm not quite sure, but that's typical, by the way, in the book of Revelation. Um, this is another, of course, classically biblical image, the, the image of the bride. The prophet Isaiah said to Israel that your builder will marry you. And that's a line that always takes my breath away when I come across it. Your builder, meaning God, the builder of the cosmos, the one also who built up Israel as a holy people, your builder wants to marry you. The Song of Songs, of course, imagines the play between God and the soul as a kind of lovely springtime dalliance between young lovers. A lot of people read that poem, and, and God's never mentioned, by the way, in the Song of Songs. And they, Why is this love poem, you know, that's full of all that kind of springtime energy, why is that poem in the Bible? Well, from the beginning, they imagined it as a great metaphor. And then Jesus is consistently portrayed in the Gospels as the fulfillment of this hope of the bridegroom meeting his bride. And doesn't Paul make it all explicit when he speaks of a married couple as a symbol of Christ's love for his church? There's the bridegroom loving his bride is like Christ loving his church. Here's the point. Here's the point, everybody. And it's, again, part of this climactic revelation in the Bible. God does not want simply to be wondered at or to be worshipped from afar. Think of a philosopher who might entertain thoughts about the first cause of all things. I mean, fine, fine. But God wants so much more than that. Nor does he want simply to be worshipped from afar, let's say in the manner of, of a pagan, worshipping and simply in cowering fear his God. No, 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 no. The biblical God wants to share his life with us in the most intimate way possible. Right, The divine life in us, the life of the Trinity in us. And the only symbol that biblical people could find that was even relatively adequate to this truth is that of sexuality and marriage, the sharing of life. Then, then, 
John reports something that he hears. Listen. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Now, there it is, everybody. There it is. There is the articulation of the climax of the biblical revelation. Remember the way all the covenants between God and Israel are expressed. I will be your God and you will be my people. The point here is the covenant has now been fulfilled in the heavenly Jerusalem. And what's the upshot of all this? What's the result of the new Jerusalem, the marriage between divinity and humanity, the fulfillment of the covenant? Listen now. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or mourning or wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. Think of the oceans of tears that have been shed by suffering humanity up and down the ages. Think of the agony caused by sickness, psychological torment, the death of loved ones. It'll all be swallowed up, washed away, taken up, if you will, into this higher place. This is what the Bible, everybody, is about. And Jesus is the place where all of this happens. Take a good look this week at the book of Revelation. Bask in the beauty of this imagery. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.